there's more than one way to know. And so this all, um, to a certain extent, is experimentation, trial and error, what we do when we pause, how we figure out what is sustainable for us in creating balance in our daily life. Sometimes you just gotta try it on. And I don't believe in looking at an experience that turned out to be less effective or less sustainable than we wanted it to be and saying, well, that was a mistake. You just know, you just learned what you don't need to continue doing. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hi, welcome, Jillian. Hi, thank you. It's nice to be here. Glad you're here. And welcome, Emily. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. I'm glad that you're here, too. So, Emily, let's start with you. You are a UF student and you are a CWC Aware Ambassador who is joining us for this conversation about self-care and living with uncertainty. So what is a CWC Aware Ambassador? So we're actually like awareness wellness ambassadors reaching everyone, which which spells out aware. It's really cute. And we are just basically we are students that represent the Counseling and Wellness Center and we want to reach everybody to make sure that everybody knows about the free services that are available to them from the CWC as they are UF students. Yeah, that's kind of like my official credential, <laughs> but I'm also an education sciences student here. And first off, I want to say that I'm really grateful to be here. I pitched a self-care idea, one of the topics that we'll discuss in this episode, because it's a word thrown around a lot and I want to dissect it with, you know, the mental health experts in front of me. Y'all are awesome. I feel like really finding the balance and plan for taking care of yourself can make you unstoppable. And I mean, some people swear by a skincare routine. Some people need to take time for their art. Some people set boundaries for themselves and their relationships. So there are like so many different ways to take care of yourself. And we're usually only inundated by like images of candles, bubble baths, and just expensive, expensive things. And I, you know, I love that. I love, I love a candle, but I kind of want to dive into, you know, more of the inner work of everything. And also important, I need to give this shout out because this is where my inspiration comes from. One of my favorite artists to ever grace this earth, Mac Miller, has a song called Self-Care. And I've streamed that at least 7,000 times. So I got to give him credit for inspiring this. And just want to say rest in peace to that legend. He's amazing. And I guess to end my little spiel, I just want to give a shout out to all me Latinx gente out there in UF, to the big nine, every multicultural org too. I love and respect their presence here. And, you know, I just want to say like, we're lifting up your voices. That's everything I want to do. And um, I'm a proud Honduran American with an amazing immigrant mother that taught me the value of working hard for opportunities like recording this podcast. Again, I'm so excited. And I'm going to try not to use too much of my Miami accent, but if any 305 Gators are listening, y'all know how it jumps out sometimes. So I'm going to try my best. But I hope all you guys, gals, and non-binary pals take something life-changing from this episode. I'm so excited. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. And your, your accent is welcome to jump out anytime. <laughs> okay. I try. <laughs> so, so you wanted to talk about self-care and you said some important things, even just in your introduction, that we are inundated by images of pampering and candles and expensive consumerism. And you said you love, you love a candle, but there's an inner part to self-care that you'd like to talk more about today. Okay. And we're on board for that. And I also want to acknowledge that we're recording this interview in the summer of 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic. And so there's a lot of uncertainty right now in our lives. And a lot of folks are feeling fear and anxiety and just um, a lot of pain. 
And so we always live with uncertainty. We, to be human is to really deeply not know what's coming next. And that's part of the human experience. But there are certain times in our lives, transitions, illnesses, pandemics, where we are confronted more immediately with the fact of uncertainty. And sometimes when we are afraid of what comes next, self-care is the first thing to go out the window. And so that's the context of our discussion today. Emily, why don't you take us off with your first question? So my first question to y'all, since like I said, y'all are experts in the mental health field. um, What do you think is the most underrated part of self-love? Well, I feel, Emily, like it's an important question um, to consider that aspects of self-love may be dismissed or underutilized or seen as less relevant. You mentioned the, some things that I would consider can function as externalizing coping mechanisms, like the candle. I think that self-care and self-love are deeply interconnected. I think that it's important to feel worthy of the self-care that you're receiving. I don't know if we all feel tuned into that. Um, And I would never suggest that somebody needs to be able to sit in a state of worthiness all the time um, in order to receive self-care or allow themselves self-care. I think that worthiness is something that it is fairly fleeting and that's okay. Um, Now we have moments of not knowing or not being able to sense that we're worthy of self-love. But I sometimes wonder about the piece of buy this thing or visit this spa, you know, that these gestures in some level have a monetary value that they're about coming outside of ourselves rather than being with ourselves. Because if you go to the spa and get the candle, that's awesome. If that did some sensory thing for you, that really helps you engage with yourself and connect and feel loved by yourself. Or if you have a vision towards self-love, including the ability to receive love energetically from the universe, for instance. But if you don't know what the candle's doing in that way, um, or there's some disconnect about, you know, you're spending the money and you feel better in the moment, but you don't really get much else beyond the moment. What does that really mean? And I hope I'm, I hope I'm speaking to what you're asking, but I think where I'm really going with this is where is the intentionality around defining self-love for ourselves and being able to access it with our belief in our own worth. I think those things are overlooked when we sit back with the memes and the suggestions right about candles and salt baths. Yeah. So when I was listening to you, the things that were highlighted was the whole being with yourself and the intentionality. The common phrase is treat yourself. And I think that treat yourself, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice message because it's like, oh, treat yourself like you would a friend. But it's a whole different relationship, like having a relationship with yourself. Like you're more than just an externalized being, like you are 24 seven with yourself. So how do you be with yourself? I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but that's the question that's running in my head. Yeah. How do you be with yourself? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I do and I don't know. You know, I feel that learning to be with myself in ways that are healthy has been a huge undertaking in my life. Healthy for me, you know, because I don't want to define that for people on an individual basis. But I think what I've had to learn too about treating myself, this has been a struggle for me over the past few months because of pandemic-like stuff. The way that my energy has been consumed, the sense of draining, the sense of ambiguity, like we don't know when this is going to stop. There are other times and ways that we will feel this way in life. But most recently, I feel that it's been a struggle with all of those things that come with the pandemic. And I am aware that we need deep rest. It is fair and valid and necessary to have periods of deep rest. When we have such massive energy leaks going into such an overarching issue that kind of sits there like a dark cloud over our daily life and discerning between what's deep rest and what is me zoning out has been important. 
So one of the ways that I pay attention to that and am I zoning out, treating myself, staying too disengaged is by getting more intuitive, which means taking data from a lot of different places from my experience. So in any given moment, I'm aware that I could think myself into madness if I, you know, wrestle with all this stuff in my cognitive linear mind. But I think that for me, I stay in touch with the notion that we're a multi-level complicated system. We have a central nervous system, a peripheral nervous system. We have so much of our brain that doesn't function in that verbal linear equation-oriented math problem-solving way. So where am I getting all of my information from about what I need when it comes to with myself? It's been important for me to remember that I can notice my sensory experiences. I can stay in touch with my body. Mindfulness meditation is great, but am I doing meditations either guided or not in a way that also allows me to sit with physical sensation, to notice what my body's telling me about what I need or don't need to be well. And also, I think the idea that we're not, for me, we are not ultimately engaging in self-love and treating ourselves, to use that phrase again, if we're not asking ourselves to grow periodically, so that if I have a sense that I'm tired, but what am I tired about? Because I've been sitting around, zoning out, treating myself a lot. So why do I still feel tired? Well, maybe it's because I'm not growing. Is there something in my body that's telling me that I need to move? Am I bored? That's a sign sometimes for me to do something creative. If I'm overwhelmed, my creative processes get thrown out the window. So I think Yeah, collecting data from different places in the system because your cognitive mind might be tired, but that doesn't mean that your body is. It doesn't mean that you're tired. Your intuition might need some fire. You might need to engage with creativity. You might need to be in nature. So these are ways that I have sat with what is treating myself and treating myself might actually look like doing something that feels challenging in the moment, but is actually a very loving gesture because I know that the little piece of discipline it takes to just push a little bit is ultimately loving regarding what I'll get out of it. Thanks, Jillian. You said a number of things that stand out to me in both of your answers about what's the most underrated aspect of self-love and now speaking about the difference between really taking care of yourself or potentially zoning out or numbing out. And I'll just share a little bit about my own experience with those things. I think when I was in college, Emily, I didn't really have a very high opinion of myself. I was in a lot of pain and I definitely thought that self-care was more about treating myself and treating myself back then meant trying to manipulate my inner experience with substances, uh, smoked cigarettes, drank beer. I think it was about trying to manipulate my inner experience to feel like I was okay. And the root feeling was that I wasn't okay. And so whether that was buying something nice and trying to make myself feel better that way or smoking and drinking or looking frantically for some man who would approve of me through the dating process, it was all an attempt to deal with this like fundamental inner sense that something was bad or wrong. And I don't think that those things that I was trying to do really helped me address that fundamental pain and unworthiness that was inside and that had come from a lot of trauma that had happened. I think that even then, though, there were a few things that I did that I stand by and that I think were genuinely a form of self-care. And one was that I journaled. I would wake up every morning and I journaled. And so I would journal that I felt awful about myself, but I was connecting with the truth of my inner experience. Another thing that I love to do was I got into making art. And I know that's something both of you mentioned. And so I would make these really dark 
drawings about feeling really bad, but it would be a way to honor what I was genuinely going through. And I loved to cook and I did some cooking. I loved to dance and I did some dancing. And those were ways of being in my body that even though, you know, I would dance and then stop dancing and go outside and smoke a cigarette, which arguably they kind of counterbalanced each other, there was there was a thread that I hung on to. And then eventually I went to therapy and I felt like the counselor I saw, she saw the destructive things that I was doing, but she also saw the the things I was doing that were good for me. And she tried to support the things that were good for me so that they could keep growing. And, and I think over time, they have kept growing more and more and kind of crowded out some of those more destructive things I was doing. But, but I, I guess for me, like the self-care and self-valuing thing, it's like a chicken or the egg. I think you can start being more loving and gentle and kind to yourself, even if you don't feel worthy of it, and that that might help you start to feel worthy of it. And at the same time, if I don't feel worthy of the self-love or self-care, I might not actually soak it in in the way that I need to, like Jillian talking about deep rest. We have to allow ourselves to receive the deep rest to get the full benefit. Yeah, so something you mentioned was and thank you for sharing because like it's awesome to like hear your experience you know especially while you're in college because you know I'm, I'm a college student and I'm not here you know trying to like represent them too so what are ways that you can like honor what you're going through because that's something you mentioned and I mean I kind of I automatically thought about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs how like you know if we're going through it like what is an accessible way that we can take care of ourselves and still be like, oh, this is this is bad, but still try to be there for ourselves, uh, self-soothing, self-caring, self-loving, all that. I feel like your question, Emily, speaks to two things that have kind of been floating around in my mind lately. And one is, what did I experience in my PhD program? And I'm not going to make this all about that, but I'll say as a as context that I think probably for the first time in five years, I'm making a conscious effort to slow down. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. The other thing that I've been thinking lately about what I notice in the students that I work with about, um, which are having a different college experience in their undergrad and some graduate students as well than I did in the early 2000s. So I suppose first I'll say, without it becoming kind of the blanket thread or um, overarching theme of our conversation, that when I was in my PhD program, I was diagnosed with cancer the summer of 2015. And I didn't leave the PhD program, which some people thought was bad self-care, right? They looked at me and were like, why aren't you taking a semester off? This is nuts. Some part of me knew at the time that I needed to stay engaged with my life as I knew it and that I could take some things off of my plate for survival and sustainability. Um, But I had to keep teaching. I also had to stay in the program. I took a reduced course load. I really asked for help with my teaching responsibilities and got help and that was great. And I couldn't have walked away from it completely and taken a semester off because knowing myself, I would have ended up being more hazardous to myself emotionally and psychologically if I had done that. I had come to know that there's a part of me that needs to stay busy and to not be defined by my adversity when I'm going through something horrible in life. Um, And that by staying engaged with other parts, keeping some forward movement for me keeps me healthier. And I don't think that there was a part of me that simultaneously said, you have to pretend this isn't happening or this isn't horrible. So it's the both and, and sometimes I hate it when people say that to me because I'm like, I know it's both, but it is, it, it has been true for me. So that it is both is that, yes, this is horrible. It's important for my life not to stop completely and become defined by this adversity where that's all I do is sit in it and my whole definition and existence is cancer patient. And the help that I asked for felt 
authentic for me, you know, and that I did take a minute to pause, you know, and, and reflect on what people had suggested to me, like take a semester off, but really just that piece of, I hear you and I appreciate your concern and I don't want to take an entire semester off from all of my responsibilities. This is what I'm going to stay engaged in, but here's how you can support me in supporting myself, if that makes sense. Do you want me to say more about that or should I shift gears towards the current undergraduate experience things that I observe? Yeah, I, w- I don't, I would shift, but maybe, maybe there's ways to tie it, to tie it together, Jillian. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, for sure. I had the fortune though of being, you know, in my thirties, I had had the experience that Sarah described of like, I'm in my undergraduate years, I'm doing stuff that feels good for me in the moment, but is it actual self-love and self-care in ways that are sustainable and healthiest for me, I'm not sure, um, and probably not. So I do relate to that piece, um, and that I didn't have the level of insight and awareness and experience that I had, you know, when I was younger, to be able to set the boundaries and live that authentically around my adversity and honoring it. What I think I see now more and folks that I work with is like, I wonder often how in touch are we in this generation of undergrads with authentic needs and what it would take to live life sustainably that would build contentment and fulfillment given what we know now. So what I'm saying is, When I have students come in and talk to me about how they have to major in engineering or they have to major in something that'll lead them to medical school, and then I talk about what drives you towards engineering and medical school, because it doesn't sound like it feels great right now, and a lot of times the answers I get have something to do with economic preparation career planning where there's a feeling of guarantee or certainty about how we'll end up stable later in life that flies in the face of what it seems like any given individual might need in order to have a fulfilled, congruent, authentic life, honoring who they are and what their sense of genuine purpose might be on this planet. So for me, finding out how to honor what people are living through sometimes looks to me like exploring, are you building a life that allows you to be your authentic self? Because I think that we need to start there and that maybe we've been on autopilot or being driven by some forces that don't speak to our authentic sense of what kind of life do we want to create and acknowledging freedom the freedom of creation and the freedom of will, which can be anxiety provoking. Like, you mean I'm free to create my life? Yeah, existentially you are. (laughs) There's a lot that can get in the way of that. But I think that if your sense of who you need to be and how you need to get there comes from someone or somewhere else that isn't about the genuine you, that it would be very hard to honor the self in this process. Um, I'm going to pause to see if you need me to go anywhere else or clarify. Emily, I'm curious to hear what you're sitting with as, as Jillian's talking. I'm just aware, Jillian, that you said a whole lot that's really quite deep. And so I just want us to probe a little bit into some of those things that you said. And just to confirm that I'm understanding, are you saying that oftentimes you see students putting things like, their desire for economic security down the road or some kind of life stability as the most important need that they have. And that's kind of putting the cart before the horse in some ways. Like they haven't really thought about what's going to make them, you said authentic needs. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Like what's going to make them a happy, healthy, authentic, sustainable human being. And that sometimes trying to figure out the economic side of it before they figure out those other questions doesn't really work for people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, so not to catastrophize, but some engineers lose their jobs and have a very hard time finding another one. 
you know, and have to walk away from their, you know, $400,000 home. And I've seen it in the world. You know, there's not a guarantee, I don't believe. So when we talk about putting economic needs and the sense of security in professional life first, what I hear a lot of culturally um, from current undergraduate students, and I'm saying undergraduate because I'm, I think I'm speaking to traditional first year freshmen sort of like came into college when I was supposed to, right? Like graduated high school started and now I'm in my undergraduate experience and I'm here to make sure that I have a stable life in a field that has a more guaranteed vibe to it, even though I don't think that actually exists. But that certainly being an engineer or doctor is more secure and comes with more predictability and certainty than being an artist, right? Or at least that's what the feeling is. But I I just wonder though about like honoring the self and taking care of yourself, like how are folks going to do that? So if those are the reasons, but that doesn't speak to something inside of you. So if it's stability for my future, the ability to have a sense of certainty in a career path, because if you're a doctor, you'll the phrase I hear all the time is you'll always have work, but I just don't know how that's sustainable if you don't have an internal drive towards medicine and a big part of you is saying, but I love music and I see myself spending 40 years writing and producing and teaching music. Yeah. So I am getting to that, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you said so many awesome things, and you brought up a good point about how, like, economic security is, like, a big question mark, but I do relate, like, with other students. Like, I I kind of have, like, a little bit of a, a not a complicated situation, but it's a little bit backwards because I... I want to be a teacher like that's just like a passion in me and I mean I get the security of like a I don't know if they have 401k but they have like something equivalent to that so I get that security and that's cool but there's also a part of me that like really wants to be like a freelance video editor like our video editing is my job right now so it's kind of like a weird balance and creating my life is that's anxiety provoking for me like I I think about that. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm, I'm in my third year of college. What is, what is a life? What is life outside of college? And uh, something you like is something else that brought up into my mind was when you said creating your life, I thought of like Pinterest vision boards and this might just be like the self-care candle queen in me, but like in my like vision board, I have images of, you know, just a tea and a candle and like stuff like that. So I think part of me really wants to create this life of balance. And when we are speaking with students who are like in very academically arduous like majors such as engineering and pre-med, it may be economic security like is a boundary and that's just like they're like, nope, but nothing, nothing's gonna nothing's gonna get me past that. So how can we foster that balance? What can we tell them? What is something that can motivate them to kind of create a balanced life? Students who are in academic majors that require them to just be extremely focused and driven on that academic accomplishment. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great question, Emily. You know, I don't think I have a super clear answer in terms of like, what would I say? Like, what's good advice? I am not sure about daily behavior for students that are in that world. I think you can be driven, you know, for what we described as economic reasons. And then I also am aware that when that happens, you may have a parallel life goal that is super fulfilling that needs this other piece, right? So I I once had an Uber driver who was a nurse at UF Health somewhere, and he was talking to me about doing his work, being close to retirement, being in the nursing profession for 20 plus years. His wife was a nurse. His kids are in nursing college. And I was like, oh, that sounds like you've like had really found your purpose and that it's like within your family. And he goes, no, I hate it. I hate it. And if I had to do this all over again and find another way, I would have. But there was something about the family the structure of his family itself 
being a supportive husband, you know, together, being able to provide security to his children, he and his wife, being a unit and providing opportunity to their kids that seemed to rival the sense of, I actually hate nursing enough, which I can respect. And I still sit back and think to myself, that would not be the way for me, right, to live because things are challenging. And I want to discern between feeling challenged and taking care of the self and honoring the self in the long run. So yeah, these degrees and majors and very rigorous academic things are really, really, really hard to do. I My undergraduate degree was in microbiology because I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And that was super intensive. And I'm like, well, if that's where I needed to be, and that was my deep passion, then the five years of microbio pre-vet work was totally worth it, right? So being challenged doesn't mean that I'm not taking care of or honoring the self, but maybe it means this is so hard and it's going to be absolutely worth it. I love that. I love that last thing you said, Jillian. Maybe this is so hard and it's going to be absolutely worth it. And I, I want to echo some of the other things you said in my response, which has to do with that both and idea, right? So perhaps this is both extremely hard and this is what I want to do is my life and I know it and I'm clear about it. And so I'm willing to make some trade-offs right now in order to achieve this goal. And maybe in the moment I'm paying a high price for that, but I know that it's worth it. So that's kind of the best case scenario for someone in one of those. And any major can be strenuous depending on who the person is too. So it could be art for somebody, right? Like they're giving everything to an art major, even though that's not what we typically think of. We think of STEM fields. But, you know, those are not usually the students that come in for counseling. The ones in my experience who have really kind of found a way to accommodate. This is both excruciatingly hard and it's what's right for me and it feels good to be doing it. They don't come in. I think that when I see students who are driven to pursue something that they're paying a high price for to pursue it. I try to invite, believe it or not, uncertainty into the conversation. And what I mean by that is, what if something happened and you weren't necessarily able to achieve your dream? Would, maybe you had a health crisis or maybe you just, you couldn't past the classes that you needed to get into it, or there's a, a lot of ways that uncertainty could play out. Is that this path that you're on, does it still feel like it's right for you? Even if you ultimately couldn't, you, you don't have the guarantee that you're going to achieve what you're headed for. And how do you take care of yourself along the way? Because if you're on a journey that's going to require a great deal of you to get to your goal. The best way to get to your goal is to find ways to pause along the way. I think that that is so easy to say and so hard to do in practice is to think about what you're, even if it's just this more abstract idea of creating a life that you want to live inside of, Emily, for yourself, like creating a life as maybe maybe a teacher who does some video editing, or maybe maybe you teach video editing. I don't know. I don't know. But And you don't know yet, really. But, but this dream of creating a life that fits you, that feels good, that feels like your Pinterest board, really authentically reflects who you are. That's a long-term journey. And it's really important to pace yourself in that kind of journey. And I, I don't even know that I'm being clear, but those are, those are things that come up for me as we talk about this. Yes, Jillian. Your response made me think about the idea that I don't believe in mistakes. So I want to say that because when we do things like, and I'm wondering if we're speaking enough too to Emily's, I think for me, I can be in this lofty space, but like, let's get down to pragmatics at some point. Like, how do you actually get the, to the balance in your life? And I think that our brains in all of the, what we do to 
the energy that goes into these academic efforts, right, uses a very specific process in our brain. And it's a problem solving process and it's a knowledge gathering and information storage process. And the reason why I speak to people about like doing things somatically, working somatically, working with intuition and creativity is so that we can, you know, flesh out like what are the pragmatic pieces of coming out of that fatigue and, you know, how can we have a different sense of knowing? There's more than one way to know. And so, This all, um, to a certain extent, is experimentation, trial and error, what we do when we pause, how we figure out what is sustainable for us in creating balance in our daily life. Sometimes you just got to try it on. And I don't believe in looking at an experience that turned out to be less effective or less sustainable than we wanted it to be and saying, well, that was a mistake. You just know, you just learned what you don't need to continue doing if that makes sense. And there's still so much value in that. Emily, I know you have a question. I think it's a really important one. Well, I just want to say, I re- Jillian, I really love the terminology I use, like data from all the systems. I can be like a logical person. So like, I love that. I'm just like, okay, like I'm like a little, little system. Like, let me get all the data. And also thank you, Sarah, for shouting out the arts. <laughs> I'm thinking about all the theater majors and the time and the work that they have to put in and, you know, all, all of the arts majors and humanities. The question that I have is, so would y'all recommend like, finding a part of your life to be like intentional because I don't know I'm just thinking about like life is pretty uncertain for everybody I mean we're in the middle of this pandemic that's that's pretty given but like how does it feel when our life is both uncertain and unintentional like is that a recipe for disaster like what where where are we going what do you mean by finding a part of your life that's intentional I feel like as a college student, sometimes those like big, you know, topics of being intentional, oh, what you're going to do in life, like that could be overwhelming. I mean, I already disclosed how I'm like confused on where I'm going, but you know, they, there are like smaller parts of my life, I guess, in like my routine too, where I can be intentional. But I want to ask y'all because I don't know if that's creating a false sense of security. Am I like running away from my problems? Like, how should I go about? I love that question. I'm sure Jillian has some things she can reflect on too. Even just what you shared about when you were dealing with cancer in graduate school and your PhD, Jillian, that you scaled back, but you knew you needed to have an area of your life that you still were engaged in. And to me, that sounds like a form of intention at a time when you must have felt like you were just totally losing control of possibly dying. You know, it was really scary, that experience, and it went on for a long time. So yeah, I'm curious to hear what, you, what you're going to say. I would say when I reflect back on what things were like for me in college and during some of the harder times of my life, even having one practice that I was intentional about, I think over time, a lifesaver. And I do mean literally, like probably prevented me from trying suicide or just being in really dangerous places. And for years and years for me, that was just writing in my journal every morning when I woke up. And over the years, it's changed to some other practices and habits. And it has become, I think, just part of how I live more. But at 20 or 25, it was just like one thing that was my lifeline. We're like one place where I could hear myself and be with myself and sit with the data, the different sources of data that were happening inside of me. And I do think having even just one practice, especially during times of uncertainty or fear can be really grounding. And I used to think of it as like, walking in a dark, dark forest or a dark castle, and I couldn't see anything, but I had my hand on a little thread. And if I could just hang on to the thread, I could find my way. What about you, Jillian? I think, you know, in reflection, if I think about what was happening at 2021, 22 for me in my life, and also, you know, fast forward to 
having some more wisdom about myself um, and the benefit of having just more years, more, more experience in the world. And what I knew to do when I was sick is that I think something that I have had the ability to do and needed to or was helped by refining it and becoming more mindful about it is that there's all the stuff, right, that we could make decisions uh, from a fear-driven place, but then there's the moment. So I would find myself in my undergrad a lot, you know, wanting to have structured time for studying, and then the day is actually upon me. And this didn't mean that I wasn't going to study, but the day would be upon me. And, it, and I found myself like moving through the day in a way that was very different than I expected that was based on like what felt like it went with the flow of the day and what did I need in the moment. And then some part of me also being like, you'll be ready for the exam when the exam is here. If you can loosen up on the micromanaging of the self and also trust though a little bit that if you let go, so like if you said I have four hours blocked off to study organic chemistry on Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday comes around and that is just not happening for a variety of reasons, I need something else on Tuesday afternoon. What is that about? And do I have to sit in a sense of failure and self-loathing because I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And so I think what I'm talking about, and I, I know we've recently amongst each other brought this concept up, Sarah, is like, what is creating safety? And I don't know if either of you would like me to kind of say more about anything else before I respond to that piece. But I, I think that feels important to speak to also. I actually have a question and thank you for bringing up like kind of the scheduling, but then also like balancing it with adaptability. Because I was like wondering, like, as a therapist, like, do you recommend routines for everyone? Because at least in, you know, the YouTube and the Pinterest that I'm in, like the realm I'm, I'm in, morning routines, night routines are it. Like that is what content creators are making. And I mean, I, I have to say, it makes me feel peaceful to watch somebody else's routine. So that's what I'm Let me about. ask you, Emily, what do you think about routine? So you, you watch the YouTubers, you've got your Pinterest. Have you found a routine to be helpful? It's not as structured, but there's definitely like some elements like to my mornings or my nights that are consistent. Coffee's one of them, making coffee. And I guess trying to stay off of my phone as, as much as possible, but in this pandemic, it's, it's difficult. So I think I do. Okay. Well, I'll say this first. I do not prescribe routines. I think it feels important for me to, and I've had these conversations very candidly with clients of saying like, what do you need me to do to facilitate structure in your life? If that's what you want, because I've had some folks say like, you don't, tell me anything that I should do. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we can talk about what it would look like, you know, to pin down some things that feel helpful for you in creating structure, but I am not prescriptive. So routines, I think, again, for me, it's like, what am I fulfilling? I feel pretty dedicated to a piece of one of maybe the biggest piece of life's work as being tolerating uncertainty and ambiguity. So if I'm going to spend a ton of time creating structure and routines because it's convincing me that I have certainty and safety always and forever, I'm not doing it. I'm not. Because to me, that feels unhealthy. I don't label people like this. This is a sort of like tongue-in-cheek way that I refer to myself. But for me, that's my neuroticism. I'm like, oh, that's neurotic, Jill. You think you can find safety and guarantee predictable outcomes by doing all these things. So I don't want to strive for that. On the large scale, I believe in dismissing the idea of certainty and guaranteed safety. But I think there's value in creating smaller experiences of relative safety in your daily life. So can we just, can yeah, we just pause yeah, there? And like, yeah. I just want, like, if I had a gong or something, I would have sounded it a minute ago. Yeah. And Emily looks like she's echoing that. Like, yeah. Do you want to highlight what's happening for you, Emily? 
it's just she said like how you know these routines sometimes can like create this false sense of certainty and I was like well I was called out I was just gently dragged there but that's that's okay thank you thank you for doing that with gentleness so I mean in some senses and I, I had kind of an aha moment too when you were saying that around some of my stuff that I have been trying to impose on myself during this pandemic. And I think, right, in response to just massive, massive personal and collective fear and uncertainty, I have been tightening up in ways and trying to over control certain things. I'll give the example of like my diet where just my poor husband, you know, I drag him through all of these different diet crazes that I, and it's not really about weight, what it is for me. It's about like trying not to die in, you know, deep down. It's just like, if I just can get it exactly right, I'm, we're going to be safe. We're going to be okay. And I know that's not real, but in the moment it feels so, I wouldn't even say it feels good. It just, it feels like I have to, like I'm driven to try to over control and that's exhausting and it uh, is expensive and then it never lasts. And so that's just a personal example of a way I've, I've been kind of overdoing it in the pandemic, trying to create absolute safety for myself, Jillian. And yeah, I think your reminder that whether it's always sticking to a certain schedule of studying or very ritualistic, rigid routines, we're not going to get the ultimate guarantee that we're after, which is that if I do X, Y, Z, I will absolutely get what I want, or I'll avoid bad things from happening or hard things from happening. I think the piece of when you say like, and it doesn't last, feels so important, right? I think that I enjoy creating some relative safety for myself. You know, hard work is valuable to me. Doing things like taking care of my body with nutrition leads to more mental health for me because I feel like I'm being a cancer survivor in a more holistic and healthy and loving way when I'm taking care of myself like that. And it's okay for me. And I think it's, I don't think it's delusional or wrong in any way to find safety in things like that, that there's the relative safety. I can be pretty certain that my house is going to be standing tomorrow. I'm still going to have this job. And I'm taking comfort in the fact that my fridge is filled with organic produce right now. And that's a privilege. And it's also something that I consider a part of my relative safety. So I still encourage, you know, that. But like you said, Sarah, if it never lasts, then there's something about that. And my experience in talking to folks and with myself, it's either that it was over the top, the way I was approaching it and not being fluid with it, or it just wasn't, and to use this idea again, it just wasn't authentic or genuine for me. It was something that I thought I should do that maybe registers with me cerebrally, but doesn't press on anything, doesn't resonate on a deeper level. Yeah, that that there's, I don't prescribe routines to people because we're not in the business of telling people what they should do as counselors, but also it's so individual to figure out what I have come to think of as what are my non-negotiables of self-care. And those are a few simple ways of living or being or practices that are truly connected to my life experiences and what I've learned about myself along the way. And they support my functioning and my well-being. And yeah, they're just not negotiable. And one of them is coffee. So I feel you on that, Emily. And another is that I don't drink. I used to drink a lot of alcohol and I stopped drinking a couple of years ago after really just grappling with the ways in which it had kind of come to 
it's one thing to treat yourself every once in a while with a drink. It's different to treat yourself every night with several. And so I had crossed over into that territory for a while and uh, the culture around me was happy to support me in that and celebrate that kind of routine drinking every evening. But the more that I listened to myself, the more that I recognized that wasn't really what was good for me because there wasn't space for the other things that I wanted to do. It just started to take up all the space in the evening. So one of my non-negotiables is I just, I don't drink anymore. And it hasn't, I didn't make it a big part of my identity to not drink. I just finally stopped doing it. And so that has allowed me to eat better, relax more genuinely in the evening. I sleep better. I go to bed at a pretty regular time, but I don't force myself to go to bed at 10 o'clock every night. I just, because I'm not drunk, I can feel when I'm tired. And so I just kind of naturally get tired around 10 o'clock every night and I listen to that. And so I think the idea being that best and most sustainable ways that I have learned to take care of myself have come from within and like learning what truly works for me, not trying to impose something that I read that I was supposed to do or read about how I was supposed to be. So you both have really touched on kind of uh, like in particular, I'm thinking about Jillian's phrasing about like not creating kind of a delusional sense of comfort. And what Sarah, you're saying is like something that truly works. I guess this is kind of an obvious question, but how does somebody reflect on that? How do you reflect on your own ideas? Because at least like in my generation, we're inundated by a bunch of other people's thoughts. Like there's this, it's just so much information. Like you will find how a routine worked for somebody, but then it didn't work for another person. And ah, and I don't know, like it's a lot. I know when I finally quit drinking. I had read hundreds of people's opinions of drinking, doctors, psych psychologists, people from AA, people not from AA, you know, just I had really done my research and, you know, there was a lot of stuff on social media, talked to all my friends. I had an old mentor who used to call it shopping around, like shopping around for somebody else's answer. And so I did a lot of shopping around and none of that led to me actually quitting drinking, which was what some deep part of myself kept telling me I needed to do. And so I think when I finally listened to that, I did need to separate from all those other voices. I got off of social media and I, you know, I had been on social media for many, many years but I killed my social media. And I realized that's not an option for some people, but I needed to really close out those other sources of information in order to learn to listen to myself again. It was too noisy out there to hear that deep self. And one of the things that I believe about that deep self, which is my compass in life, is that She's always there, but it's real easy to drown out her voice. If I slow down and get quiet, I can find her. She's always been there for me, but there's so many ways we get distracted and led astray. That's my personal belief. So I needed to silence the noise. And then I kind of had to get reacquainted with her and really try to understand her. What were you going to say, Emily? I mean, I just, I would just want to point out how like we really like took like this externalized topic of, you know, uncertainty and um, even like self-care, like kind of how what I was talking about in the beginning. And we really made this episode about listening to yourself and finding what you want. And I just, I don't know, I just want to point that out. Because the way that I walked into my idea of self-care, you know, upon researching for this episode, it was very like, outside of me and now I'm it's a new perspective like oh work within myself okay so which is free too which has the benefit of being free yes Jillian I imagine you have some thoughts too yes I'm listening to you describing you know just kind of a process of getting still 
tuning in, Sarah, and your acknowledgement, Emily, of like, well, where has this really gone? And this is a, about internal world stuff now, um, what we're talking about. I think one of the things that's been helpful for me is also like letting go of the idea that there's a destination that I'm arriving at. You know, this whole, and the mindfulness world talks about this a lot, but I don't know if we really break it down and like sit with this, but we refer to it and we say all these things in the mindfulness and presence and meditative spaces of like, just be, you know, like, just be. I'm like, great. (laughs) But what do we do with that? Sometimes I reflect on the idea that five minutes ago doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't. There's nothing I can do about it. Five minutes from now does not even exist yet. So when I am acting like I have a destination that I'm trying to get to, which could be balance, sustainable self-care, living authentically, honoring the self, like all of the things that we've mentioned, okay, but you know, being in touch with the part of me that knows that there is only this present moment that technically exists. So what if I let go of the destination, have the concept somewhere, but get okay with the fact that I have no idea what it looks like and I don't quite know where it is or how long it would take me to arrive there anyway. And then being present with whatever I can kind of gather from my internal self and the environment around me if that in, makes in sense. this moment what you can yep, gather in this, this moment, moment. Mm-hmm. Mm. and that's married to me to the idea too that none of this is a steady state what we're striving for so we can find balance and we can find self-love and self-care and make peace with uncertainty but be also open to the idea that that's fluid and we're not going to arrive at some steady state of balance, self-love, honoring the self, authenticity, all of it, and stay there. We will always be coming in and out of it. Emily, what, what are your thoughts? While Julian was speaking, like I was, I was thinking this is, this is all based on the idea, you know, you, you got into mindfulness and like how we only have this moment and it's like in this moment, like how can I honor myself? And uh, I mean, like we've said, myself, everybody own self is like, is super complex. It, you know, it obviously takes some like introspection and, but you know, sometimes there is that intuitive gut that like, you know, Sarah, you were touching upon. I guess there's just so many ways to reflect and it kind of goes, I mean, I, I, that was my question three questions ago, but it's kind of all tying together. One of the things that comes up with your question, Emily, in this moment, how can I honor myself? I had a therapist teach me a really simple practice of checking in, in the moment. And it was something that I worked with for a long time in my 20s. I would journal about it, or I would just kind of sit down and and check in. And she would have me check in in this moment, what is happening in my mind or what, what does my mind want to say? What's going on in my head? And so I would check in with my head and say, well, actually right now I hear a truck outside. So I'm aware that there's noise. I hear something through my senses. I hear, oh, truck's gone. That's nice. But anyway, like my head can be really busy. It can be having a lot of thoughts. Fine. What do I notice in my heart? So in the center of my chest, what's happening there? And right now I notice that I feel kind of soft and tender in there. Like it feels really sweet to have spent this time with the two of you. And then I can check in with my belly or my gut. And it's just calm and quiet right now. So, and then I might even ask a question after I check in with those three parts what is it that I really need in this moment? What is it that I really need in this moment? And all of that took maybe one minute, but I feel like I can access a deeper answer to that question of what do I really need? Like not to check Facebook one more time. You know, I know it's not that. It's probably something else. Like when we get off this 
interview, I'm going to stand up and stretch because I've been sitting here and my body's feeling a little creaky and cranky. But things like that, that are just really simple, we can do them in the moment and they're designed to listen for in the moment, right here, right now, feedback from ourselves can be really helpful. Emily, say about you had just indicated a little shift in our language, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, I I was like petition to change, like treat yourself to honor yourself. Honor yourself, that takes so much, you know, more like we've talked about mindfulness. And, you know, I guess a treat yourself would be, you know, for you, Sarah, is like, oh, check Facebook. But then an honor yourself is like, no, I'm going to stretch. I'm going to have some uninterrupted time. Yes, yes, exactly. And some, and maybe sometimes they coincide, the treating and the honoring might mean ice cream. You know, that sometimes it's both. But I bet that it's not honoring myself, the answer is not always ice cream. Whereas treating myself, the answer is pretty much always ice cream for me. So this has been a lovely, a lovely conversation. It's taken us in some surprising directions, but I think important. Any last reflections or thoughts from you, Emily and Jillian? I'd like to share a quote before we end. I learned about this person because in a timely way, I stumbled across this Instagram and I'm speaking of social media. I have a place where I go, by the way, on social media, which is Instagram, where I'm like, I am not putting all the heavy stuff here. Instagram is the place for me to go that is more oriented towards positivity, cuteness, nurturing stuff. So that is one way, just speaking quickly to the social media piece of like, and intentionality is like, where are the spaces that I go and why? So Instagram for me is reserved for not heavy, not the news, not COVID, not, you know, the things that could stress me in an unhelpful way. But here's this quote that I became then so excited that we were going to have this conversation. So this woman's name is Brianna Weiss. She's a poet. She writes about emotional intelligence. And the quote from her is, true self-care is not salt baths and chocolate cake. It is making the choice to build a life that you do not need to regularly escape from. Can you read it one more time? Yes. And I will say her name again too, Brianna Weiss. True self-care is not salt baths and chocolate cake. It is making the choice to build a life you don't need to regularly escape from. Thank you both for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you both very much. I have enjoyed it. And if it's okay, I'd like to make two book recommendations. Uh, we've talked a lot about things like, you know, accessing information and in the self through other ways, like through the intuition and the body and creativity. So I think, you know, two resources that I use myself and point people to that facilitate that or that are accessible. It feels like work, but it doesn't feel for me in the feedback that I've gotten like, horrible, unsustainable, like what are, what am I doing right now work? So one is your body knows the answer using your felt sense to solve problems, affect change and liberate creativity. That's by David I. Rome, R-O-M-E, Rome. And the other one is the intuitive way, the definitive guide to increasing your awareness by Penny Pierce. And I like these because I think they take these abstract concepts that we've talked about and puts them into applications. So when we, you know, air this and people are like, how am I going to go forward? What are they talking about? Somatic data gathering and intuition. These, I think, are super helpful. I'm really excited. And we'll post links to those in the show notes on the website, too. But Jillian, I have never heard of either one of those books which is stunning to me because I love this stuff. So I'm really excited. I'm going to check them both out. Thank you. And Emily, it, it's been great. Um, I don't know what order we'll post this episode in season two, but I want to acknowledge that you are the first UF student to join us for these conversations. And it was just so great to have you here and to have your perspective and 
your reflections and your questions. So I, I'm so glad that you joined us. I second all of that. Thank you for bringing the conversation to the table. It's been great to hear things from, you know, where you're at, what are the questions you have that may be representative of other students who are in a shared time and place where, where you're at in your trajectory. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jillian and Sarah, so much. Um, I'm so, thank you for saying that I'm the first U.S. student. Um, immediately when he said that, I was like, I do it for all the dreamers. <laughs> I do it for all the Latinos, Latinas. So yeah, last minute plug, but thank you. Thank you all oh, yes. so much. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.